What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effing World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, it's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to The Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and with me, as usual, we got Jake Dello. Salutations. Kiara Mitchell. Hello. Pete McKenzie. Hey, yeah. And Gabby Magnuson. Morning. So two quick hits before we get started. One is super interesting. So Responsible Statecraft, which is the like uh, platform blog, whatever, for the Quincy Institute, which I'm, I'm not trying to talk about all the time. I'm Like I said before, I'm hot and cold on it, so I'm definitely not like actively cheerleading for it. There's a, there's a piece that they put on the blog by this organization called Rethink Media, and it kind of wields the like public diplomacy communications tool of statecraft or for of foreign policy for uh you know progressive ends so like they focus on the pr and the comms stuff and they published on the responsible statecraft the findings of a poll that they did and this is super fucking interesting um also like right up our alley they were polling people with a focus on Gen Z and millennials, like people under 40, and they broke out Gen Z versus millennials. They're trying to get what are the American public's attitudes about foreign policy in general, about endless war, about China policy, uh, about military spending, all these things that are just recurring themes on the show, you know? And what they find and what the piece documents overwhelmingly is that the Democratic Party has moved left on foreign policy in general, but especially among people under 40 and doubly especially within Gen Z. Like Gen Z, and you guys are, are like embodiments of this to a degree. It, <laughs> you, have, you have different dispositions, different attitudes toward foreign policy than your you know older counterparts. Um, and, I hope so. Yeah. But like, this is the thing. So like the Chicago Council does great, polling on foreign policy like they're probably the best but they lump millennials and gen z in together and it normalizes out or like it reduces the significance of difference of perceptions that gen z has the data we'll link it in the show notes the data for this which they've they have the full spreadsheet that you can access it is very fucking progressive 
all the right things about uh, opposition to military spending. They prefer a foreign policy centered on uh, diplomacy and soft power. Only 12 percent of, you know, quote unquote, Democrats support actual hard power approaches to foreign policy, which is like a total flip from the you know 1990s, the unipolar moment. 77 percent of Democrats agree that, quote, our goal should be to avoid a new Cold War with China. We have lots of shared uh, and interconnected interests like global trade and economic growth of the developing world. This is this is what they voted for. Right. We should. They're literally, quote, we should work with China to reduce tensions and identify areas where we can work together. I don't know that we can do that as a country. It depends on the other party. Right. Like China's an aggressive yeah. actor in certain ways. That's good to say. But in terms of for, uh, formulating foreign policy, this is something like you have to take into account. This is where the Democratic Party is. This is what they want, right? Uh, Decenter this whole Cold War stuff, push it to the periphery, center diplomacy, um, find ways to wield public policy other than fucking militarism. Fantastic, fantastic insights. Also, it basically boils down to the people want a progressive foreign policy, man. So. Shout out to Rethink Media for, for doing the polling. Uh, when do you think that's going to start resonating with the Democratic Party, do you think, man? Uh, that people want this sort of foreign policy? I don't know. I mean, the foreign policy in, in the Democratic Party, and in general, it's controlled by Mandarins, you know? The, it's an elite class that's, like, very disconnected from the grassroots. And for, you know, ever since the 1970s, there's been, or, like, maybe the 80s, there's been a kind of like uh, condescension or antipathy toward the grassroots activists. It's like, yes, yes, the activists, you know, they carry the moral weight of the Democratic Party, but like we're dealing with high politics and strategy. Let us do our thing. And the truth is that the grassroots often don't speak that language of strategy, that language of high politics. And so they don't get to engage the national security discussions except from a moral perspective. But the and this is like my enduring frustration. It's like you can never systematically restructure or reshape uh, foreign policy approaches if you can only lean on the moral. You have to be able to engage those strategic discussions on those terms and advocate for for positions within the box of, of the confines of like thinking about things like deterrence. And when you can't do that, the mandarins push you to the side. So like there has yeah. to be some gap bridging, you know, in theory, that's what we're doing here. In theory. <laughs> I mean, mostly we're just talking shit, you know. That is, in fact, that is the ultimate Gen Z strategic approach is just to shit folks everywhere. Yeah. So the uh, second quick hit, not so much a shout out, sort of a shout out, Richard Haas, this is not the shout out part, Richard Haas, who's the head of uh, Council on Foreign Relations, he wrote a piece for his journal uh, that he sits on top of foreign affairs, and he argues that we need to eliminate or clarify the longstanding strategic ambiguity that we've had in our commitment toward Taiwan, toward uh Sino-Taiwan relations, Chinese-Taiwan relations. If you, if you know anything about this subject, you know that we sort of like, we decided to forsake Taiwan in the 1970s in order to open relations with China. And we opened relations with China on a bet. And it isn't the bet that everybody talks about nowadays about like, well, we were going to liberalize them or whatever. The bet was that we were going to uh, 
staunch or mute or restrain Chinese revolutionary adventurism abroad because Mao's China and the Cultural Revolution were fucking exporting revolution all over Asia and Africa. Not only did we see like traditional Cold War danger in that, but just that heightened risks of conflict and spread militarism, which we only cared about in the Cold War lens. But like that was a violent thing that increased risks in developing world. The wager initially in a foreign policy sense was like, okay, if we engage China the right way, if we like establish a detente, um, we can restrain China's behavior. And it totally worked. And there were other ambitions too. And Nixon was, the, there's a fucking myth that Nixon, only Nixon can go to China. That's fucking bullshit. The, the Democratic Party was openly advocating uh, engagement with China, trade with China even, in the late 60s and early 70s. And Nixon, there's a whole bunch of evidence to support this. Nixon wanted to outflank the Democrats. He wanted to get, he saw that the Democrats were going to open relations with China. They were actively reaching out to Deng Xiaoping. And so he decided to get to China first. He wanted to take credit for opening China, which is very much like Trump wanting to get credit for like ending the Korean War. Yeah. And But like as a foreign policy wager, the, the bet was about stabilizing Asia by reaching a kind of a, uh, accommodation or understanding with China. As part of that, we totally fucked over Taiwan. And at the time, they were a dictatorship, so it didn't have this. It didn't have any moral weight to it. And then now Taiwan has become a consolidated democracy. So it's like it's more problematic. But we've always had this precarious dance with Taiwan and China because we want China to be the responsible stakeholder, etc. And we're legislatively required to provide arms for Taiwan's defense. Um, and then we maintain this kind of ambiguous position about whether we would actually defend Taiwan if they were attacked. And the, this ambiguity has served all parties well in the past. But like, of course, this, this China bargain is starting to break apart. And so Richard Haas is saying, look, with the bargain breaking apart and with China showing greater assertiveness, we need to clarify that we will defend Taiwan if attacked. And so he's trying to say that we should establish basically an alliance with Taiwan the way we do with like Japan, South Korea, Australia, NATO. That's hugely fucking problematic. The The main beef that I have mentioned this in like Politico has a newsletter on China that um, just mentioned this today. But basically, we can't have serious debates about stuff like this until after the election. Trump, this, yeah. all of this is just trying to tie Biden's hands, putting stuff into the pipeline and locking in decisions before he comes to office so that he can't unfuck it. So he has to like, just take it. And that's fucked up. But like, also this is the administration. This is the presidency that fucking is gutting allies and extorting allies. We're literally right now talking about taking troops out of Korea and Japan. And so you want to, in that context, claim that you're going to protect Taiwan not credible, not remotely credible. And it might actually goad China into aggression where otherwise they would sit on their hands a little while. This is all downside. Richard Haas doesn't know what the, f I don't want to say he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. I kind of, actually, I kind of do want to say that. The, the thing <laughs> is like, I don't want to prejudge this. Like there's a debate to be yeah. had here about commitments and strategic ambiguity, but it has to happen in a context where America is still a democracy 
where there's not some fucking showman sitting in the White House and where like the U.S. takes credibility seriously. So if that context changes, then we can have a discussion about Taiwan. Right now is not the time, dude. What's the urgency? No. Like, I, I think Richard Haas is, is carrying Trump's water here, even though he poses like he's a never-Trumper. Well, going on what you said before, man, do you think the administration is going to go full scorched earth policy if they have to and just essentially fuck up the administration and fuck up the apparatus so much that Biden's essentially just going to have to spend his time unbreaking what Trump's broken instead of, you know, building back as Biden wants to do? Yeah, I think so. I don't know if you would call so it scorched earth. I think that's what's happened. Like, I've talked to several people the past couple of weeks in D.C. who are all saying that like nobody could admit it out loud, but they believe that there's no adult supervision in Washington right now. And so they're oh, all God. they're all the interest groups, all the bureaucratic actors. They're all rushing to lock in as much as they can seek out maximalist positions on their issues so that they've secured their interests in a Biden administration. So they're taking advantage of the fact that um, we've got a fucking nitwit in charge. That's disturbing, right? And to me, that's what this is. This is like, oh, we're trying to foreclose on having a serious strategic debate, so let's just jam it in now. Just wait a few months, dude. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for Prediction Market, question one this week. Will Lukashenko, Belarus's dictator, be ousted or assassinated before November? Yikes. Jesus, this is fucking... Yeah. So I'm going to say no, but I think the, the no is not because there's not a popular uprising, because there does appear to be. It's that Belarus's dictator is aligned with Russia at this point, yeah. and the little green men are already there, man. So I think the little green men will keep him safe. That's sad. He is a bastard. Did Bel Belarus is <laughs> now like really Russian sphere of influence. Yeah. So you were really eager on the jump this week to write that question up for some reason. <laughs> I saw. I saw. Um an armed column of APCs going into Minsk. Nah, Jake's just talking with his brothers in the black hand. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the first time that's actually been said about it. It's a World War One <laughs> reference, I folks. Know where this is coming from. World War One reference, guys. <laughs> Question two. A while ago, Van predicted that Trump would levy more sanctions against international criminal court officials, and he was right. Boom. The question today is, will Trump sanction any other notable NGOs before December? <laughs> well, uh, so I'm going to say no, but it's like if you sanction the International Criminal Court or officials for the court, why would you not sanction it? Like there's no there's yeah. clearly no taboo against it. It's just, you know, <laughs> yeah. like it's a question of like whether it would serve serve as purposes. I don't know of any other NGOs that are on on his active shit list or on the administration's active shit list. So on that basis, I would say no, but it's a huge fucking, it's a huge rejection of just kind of like institutionalism itself. And certainly of cosmopolitanism, which we'll talk about later in the episode to reject something like the international criminal court, not just to reject it, to sanction its officials, sanction it. to anti-legitimize yeah. it, you know, to go to war with it. It's fucking weird. 
Question three. Will the United States be successful in their desire to create an Indo-Pacific defense alliance between India, Japan, and Australia? And that's following a report in the South China Morning Post, essentially stating that the United States is seeking a NATO-like alliance with these countries. Yeah, I feel like I seriously dislike Steve Began, the Deputy Secretary of State. Yeah. He was also the North Korea Special Envoy during the summits. I feel like oh, he's yeah. he's snowed some people on the left. Like he's really played people on the left who were like hoping for peace in Korea. He's made them think that he's like a reasonable person. And he's a reasonable person in the sense of 1950s madmen kind of running the world way but like he's not a reasonable person in the sense that he is serving directly trump he puts the veneer of reasonableism on all the garbage uh shit posting gaslighting that trump and pompeo do like he's a foot soldier and we shouldn't forget that and that's what's happening here too right so like the the state department in particular keeps doing this fucking weird thing where they say they want to do something that sounds like it would be good, but they're doing it in a way that is like very evidently disingenuous and that almost serves as a poison pill for the initiative itself. They, they want to arrange a, a summit with Kim Jong-un. It's only to put on theater to support Trump. Um, they want to do trilateral arms control with Russia and China, but the... For one, China has never entertained mm. that. And two, they want to condition that trilateral arms – they want to condition the renewal of the New START treaty on that trilateral arms control. So they're saying they want to do trilateral arms control, which on the face of it sounds good, except they're only saying that because it's impossible. And by being impossible, they're going to use it as a justification to not renew New START. And then now he's saying that uh, – Steve Began is saying like – the U.S. wants a an alliance of Indo-Pacific countries and, you know, NATO, too, actually. And but what he's it's funny they use that language. Yeah. What NATO, this is, is hobbled it. Yeah. it's not. Fuck. Yeah. Like the this is once again, it's like you're trying to destroy alliances at the same time that you claim you want to build yeah. them. That's not <laughs> credible. It's not credible. No. They're trying to rationalize this. Well, the alliances that we have are like old alliances, maybe not fit for purpose. Let's create new ones. The process of doing that, first of all, the strategic rationale there is is at best unclear. But the process of trying to like shift from one set of allies to another discredits the new setup, the new arrangement that you're trying to make. Apart from the fact that it mentions countries like fucking New Zealand, which want no part of a you yeah. know an alliance with the United States. Um, and so, and even India, right? Like India doesn't want an alliance. It wants to just like, as convenient, work with the United States on common interests, yeah. you know? <laughs> so this is all fucking crazy. The U.S. will not be successful if what they're trying to do is actually create a multilateral alliance that's NATO-like. Mm. If they're trying to just like add people to the quad, this four-party sort of ongoing dialogue which currently is like U.S., India, Japan, Australia. You can add people to that. I think that's reasonable. There's no commitment there. Um, and you want like-minded countries to work together. Of course. You do need a certain amount of that in order to keep China in check. I just The alliance language and the comparison to NATO, all of that is like 
just excessive. Yeah, I agree, actually. And last question, I swear on my life this is correct. Will Akon succeed, the rapper Akon, will he succeed in building his futuristic super city in Senegal called Akon City before 2030? Akon, I use man, that was like my military <laughs> days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was so sick. Let's go. Where's that? It like, has to be the teaser for this week. <laughs> we need that sound of the jail cell closing that he always uses. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh man, so I had no idea about this. I can't believe that he is organizing a future city in Senegal or whatever. I don't even know what that Ooh, means. Akon City. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Senegal needs it. I don't understand it. Uh, I'm not sure that... God, <laughs> I hate to be pessimistic. I'm not sure this whole super city thing is going to work out, but I'm also not sure that the world itself is going to work out by 2030. So it's a little too far in the future. Is it the party note? Akon, I think he's taken a page out of Trump's book because he's described his um, project as very, very African. But it <laughs> turns out he's not hiring any African people to build it. Which uh, is yeah, very it's the that's which disturbing. is very unfortunate but that's Acon City and that's Prediction Market wow for this week time for Stay Off Twitter where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to so for Stay Off Twitter I got two here one from Gordon Flake long time homie he is the CEO of the Perth US Asia Center at the University of Western Australia the only place more remote than where I'm doing this show from. And he is a former Washingtonian like me. So he's like a Washingtonian in the Antipodes making good. The, the tweet is a response to this thing that we just talked about with Steve Began, the quad multilateral alliance in Asia, whatever. The weird thing is like, once again, in only a couple months before the election, you see yet another foreign policy initiative so like what we talked about earlier, initiative after initiative keeps coming out in these final months. Like suddenly there's so much foreign policy ambition. Why is that? It's because you have bureaucratic actors trying to secure their little slice of the pie to fuck over Biden, to prevent Biden from weighing in strategically on what actually needs to happen and to kind of present him with a fait accompli. So Gordon sees all this, I think he implicitly agrees, and he says, take two aspirin and call us in 63 days. And <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's, the, that's like the best point that I feel like anybody can make right now, which is like, look, don't get any bright ideas. Hold on to it. There's nothing is going to happen between now and January next year that can't wait, right? Unless you have some magical plan to prevent a nuclear war that you think is imminent, just hold your horses, buddy. Okay. Second tweet from Stephen Wertheim. He is the deputy director for research at the Quincy Institute. I, I can't believe I'm talking about them again, but he says on Twitter, 
it's much, a how much did they give us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we're gonna promote you guys, you need to pay us. So <laughs> he says it's a danger to democracy that presidents are not prosecuted while in office, but can be prosecuted out of office. To incentivize the peaceful transfer of power, the norm should be consistent in both phases, and better for presidents to be prosecutable all the time. So this is really interesting and. You know, if if he had said this in 2015, I would have been like, "Yeah, whatever, dude. Like, get out of here." Um, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't even entertain this kind of um, line of reasoning. But in the Trump era, I'm, I think I'm 100% on board with this because there will be more Trumps, I I fear. Um, and even if there aren't, we've got one right now. There, if you're not prosecutable while in office. It means you can act with impunity, unaccountably, which is what Trump is doing. And he's amplifying, accelerating all of his unlawfulness, autocratization, whatever you want to call it. He's accelerating it now because he knows he has to stay in office to avoid prosecution. This is really fucked up. And so the decline of American politics is accelerating. The corruption of the highest office in the land is accelerating because it's being incentivized by this system that we've basically, you know, implicitly set up right now, which relies entirely on the Congress to impeach the president uh, and remove him from office. But it can't if, you know, a sufficient number of the Congress is of his same party, you know. So we're in a hell of a bind now. And the only way this is resolvable is for presidents to be prosecutable even while serving. I feel like that opens a little bit of a Pandora's box, you know, like uh, you're going to get all these attempts to indict Obama, you know, if they had this, if they had the system set up like this in 2015. Yeah, for sure. But I don't know. We, we have an existential problem right now. And so this is a logical solution to that. I have a question. As someone who, like, has no idea how your country's run, apparently. <laughs> okay, first of all, so, like, if you're criminalized in America, so, yeah, you pretty much lose the right to vote, but you can still run for office? So if he, if he steps outside of the white, uh, the Oval Office, Gabby, if he murders someone, then he gets prosecuted. But if he <laughs> does it inside the Oval Office, then he's then he's all good. And the principle, <laughs> the, the, the shared understanding that we all had was that president is not above the law, and so that you are prosecutable. But you can claim executive privilege and a lot of like there's there's so much primacy of the executive in American law that he, Trump has a basis to argue that he is above the law, even though the historical norm is that he's not. And so he has he has he has a legal claim to say, you cannot prosecute me and I would simply be defiant. And since he occupies the White House, there's not really a recourse unless the Congress removes him from office, votes to remove him from office, and then they get the sergeant at arms or something to like, or the U.S. Marshal Service or something to like physically take him out. But that's that's obviously not in the cards. So there's no just uh, allowing the courts to criminally prosecute him because he'll just be defiant. I was going to say, that were presidential powers always like this? Like that no, is powerful no. that they could basically just be like... It used know. to be a pretty like awful job like you're it's like it 
it used to be something that was not very prestigious at all, and it was very ceremonial. And then starting as America was becoming a great, great power with the turn of the 20th century, arguably after the Civil War, like 1865, you start seeing more and more power invested in the executive, in the presidency itself. And then in the age of like mass media, the presidency has all of this informal influence that arises from his his official position. So now it's just locked in more and more and more. And foreign policy uh, has become the area where the president has unlimited powers, basically. And we're, we're living with the consequences of that now. Yeah, that shit's feral. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Next tweet. <laughs> That's a good way to end it. So my first tweet of the week comes from Kashana Coley, who's this dope writer who writes on The Daily Show and pieces for the New York Times, the Atlantic, Esquire, etc. So CNN broke the news this week that the American CDC has told states to prepare to distribute COVID-19 vaccines as soon as late October. While we might have heard about this, Kashana brings up a really good point in her tweet saying, looking forward to this entirely trustworthy vaccine that will coincidentally appear right before election day. And I wanted to flag this down because we literally just finished roasting Russia for coming up with a monthly vaccine a couple of episodes ago. Yeah. And I just wanted your take on this, Van. Yeah. How coincidental, you know? This is, I read a poll maybe two weeks ago that said that a third of Americans, a little more than a third, I think it was like 35%, would not take a vaccine that was proven to work. <laughs> so, okay. So, like, they wouldn't believe the science and or they wouldn't understand the science. So they just yeah. wouldn't. So they just check out. And, like, when I heard that, I was like, oh, my. First of all, I'm thinking of, like, the QAnon flat earth people, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, that. okay, roughly, that probably is a third of the country, you know? Like, millions <laughs> of followers on the Facebook page. You've got the president mm -hmm. blasting them out, you know, and his, his base yeah. is around that much. So, like, when I saw that, I was like, okay, if that's the QAnon crowd, America really is fucked because you can't function as a country. This is like basic social network analysis. The spread of the virus is going to require that you have mass implementation of a vaccine, like to stop the spread permanently. Once a vaccine is out, um, you're going to have keep having community transmission if a third of the country is not taking the vaccine. And so you're never going to be and you, America refuses to do a real lockdown. So there's no way without a lockdown or without a vaccine that is implemented in mass. There's just no way to fucking stop the virus, man. And so this is like literally the end of days for America if that poll is true. And what I didn't think of was that Trump would promote a fake slash dangerous virus and that he would get the CDC to like, you know, do his bidding yeah. uh, and in that it would be timed right before the election. And so it raises skepticism about a vaccine, even for normal people. You know, the situation is no less fucked. But until the vaccine is proven, even normal people probably shouldn't sign on to Trump's death cult vaccine. You know, do you think like it would go the other way as well? Do you think if like Trump and Pence released a vaccine on the eve of the election that's, you know, essentially a Trump miracle drug is advertised. Do you think that, you know, most of the liberal base would, would accept that and take it the same way as the QAnon people probably wouldn't? Probably not. The thing is, you can't, 
you can't know that it's a proven vaccine at this mm. point. And it would take a yeah. while to yeah. for that you'd have to see like at a at a, a public societal level declines in new cases in areas where they've implemented the vaccine. Like you, it, the data to come in to prove that this is not fake would take a while. And that's why dropping it before the election is so important because you can sell it just like you sold fucking nuclear denuclearization with North Korea. But it takes time mm. for the evidence to come in to be like, oh, that was all fake. Or like, oh, this is actually killing people. You know, it is a fucking, you know, Jonestown massacre that we won't know right away. And so if you drop it right before the election, the consequences won't be till after the election. I'm the furthest thing from being being an anti-vaxxer, right? But like, so Trump's dropping this vaccine and the only people who are really going to use it if any, would be his followers. Yeah. And yet most of his followers are kind of anti-vaxxers. How does that make sense too? I don't... Uh, they're not necessarily... Anti-vaxxing in the... Prior to the Trump era, anti-vaxxers was like a very kind of broad coalition. Um, oh, okay. There was a lot of people who were... Like people that I know who were highly educated who were anti-vaxxers. Jim Carrey, the fucking Ace Ventura guy, was an anti-vaxxer. I'm not saying he's like... Highly intelligent. I mean, like a lot of celebrities were anti-vaxxers, right? Yeah. And like they've sort of changed their tune now, but like the anti-vaxxer thing had overlaps with polite society and QAnon latent alt-right stuff, you know? My second tweet comes from James Shaw, who's a senior fellow over at Carnegie Endowment, which is a foreign policy think tank. So recently, as we might have heard, Japan's longest serving prime minister, Shinzo Abe, resigned for health reasons. This, Shaw tweets, creates both concerns and opportunities for Japan in the United States. So his following tweet thread is something I think people should definitely check out just because it does have some really interesting thoughts on this development as well as a succinct assessment of Abe's tenure. The quick summary, though, um, is that amongst accomplishing stability for Japan, which is quoted from him, especially in foreign policy, Schaff suggests that Abe was the right man at the right time for Japan to manage the potential negative fallout from Trump administration policies. Perhaps his only fault was the deterioration of bilateral relations with South Korea. And Schaff ends his thread by saying that the Liberal Democratic Party has actually the potential to carry on if it avoids frivolous factional bickering and taps into private sector and bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean it this it's a big this is a big deal and like in the US especially there are a ton of Japan watchers but the the paradox is that there isn't a lot going on with Japan at any given moment for the past like 20 years. I mean like stuff I don't want to like downplay it but like when you compare it to like the nuclear crises with North Korea or aircraft carriers yeah. by the Taiwan Strait, China building, you know, an imperial foreign policy, like there's all these big things happening in geopolitics. And then Japan's shit is happening within this tiny, this narrow space of change. Strategically, the Shinzo Abe resigning thing is the biggest thing to happen on Japan news in like quite a while. This is their nuclear crisis, you know, for Japan watchers. And because they're all invested in Japan issues, they're very careful to not... Japan watchers almost never offer hot takes on Japan. They offer, like, very muted 
commentary. They have interests in maintaining good ties to Japan. Nobody wants Japan to alienate Japan because strategically Japan is very important to the United States. So all of that is a backdrop for this. And Jim Schoff is actually like a very good uh, buddy. We worked in the Pentagon together and he, he knows Japan inside and out. And he offers Shinzo Abe was on balance this very important, productive, positive figure for Japan. And his his biggest legacies in some ways were in the foreign policy space where he helped sort of normalize Japan as a sort of like an international actor. He's he's created basically a national security state for Japan, creating a national security council, um, changing interpretations about, you know, Japanese pacifism. He's had some some failures. And the biggest problem that I see is like that view of Shinzo Abe is dissonant with the view that kind of like the region takes of Shinzo Abe, right? Like Xi Jinping, mm -hmm. you know, China and Japan have had decent relations lately, but like they, they also don't get on well strategically. They're rivals. And so there's a certain amount of animus toward Abe. In South Korea, Abe is worse than Kim Jong-un, depending on who you talk to. They think... Japan is wow, still okay. fucking super evil. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Understandably, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And Abe hasn't done shit to yeah, uh, mend fences or like fix the no. history issue. Yeah. I, he and Japanese conservatives tend not to take uh, the South Korea rivalry stuff very seriously, which only makes it worse. For sure. And I think it's basically true, much as people don't want to admit it, that like for the U.S., uh, strategically and sentimentally, Japan is way more important than South Korea as an ally. Yeah. I don't necessarily believe that. I see them uh, much more equally, at least in sentiment. But strategically, we just we're we're very invested in Japan. And Abe was like the perfect person as a as a pro American counterpart. You know, so like it's not clear what comes next, but it's a big change because Abe was lockstep with us. He was kissing Trump's ass all the time. Sometimes that paid off, sometimes it didn't. And if you had a like a more independent actor or a hedger in as prime minister for Japan when Trump came to office, it's possible that the alliance could have blown up, you know. But Abe was a kind of like pro-American loyalist and that worked out for like keeping the alliance healthy. So it's interesting. This is this is a big change and it's worth it's worth just like putting this on everybody's radar because who knows what comes next. Let's jump into Armchair Analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. Well, this week for Armchair Analysis, we have a piece from The Nation, the first time that we've done a piece from The Nation, which, when I was thinking about it, is a, a huge surprise. And it's a piece by Daniel Steinmetz Jenkins called Martin Nussbaum Thinks the So-Called Retreat of Liberalism is an Academic Fad. And the, the piece explains that the key dividing line of a lot of nationalist politics is this uh, this playoff between so-called cosmopolitan elites and the forgotten majority or the silent majority of the heartland. And key to understanding those so-called cosmopolitan elites is Martin Nussbaum, who is the leading scholar of cosmopolitanism. In first-year polls, I remember reading Martha Nussbaum's work. She is, you know, the, the iconic cosmopolitan. Mm. Uh, and she's recently published a book 
called the cosmopolitan tradition, a noble but flawed ideal. Kind of, it, it engages with where cosmopolitanism has gone wrong in a really interesting way. And so this is an interview between uh, Steinmetz Jenkins and, and Nussbaum. And Nussbaum makes really clear that cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism is the idea that we are, I quote, first and foremost citizens of the world rather than of a particular nation or region. Uh, predicated on a universal respect for human dignity and crucially on a demand for justice, regardless of race, sex, or creed. And, and the era that Nussbaum is picking up, or the thing, the flaw that she thinks uh, exists, is that the founders of cosmopolitanism scoffed at money, rank, and power. It imposed no duties of material aid since a dignified life can be achieved without goods or fortune. And that that breakdown, that focus on demands for justice as opposed to demands for material aid is where she thinks that cosmopolitanism has gone wrong or, or hasn't delivered on its, on its central promise. And really interestingly, whereas Nussbaum is often decried as this kind of patron saint of rootless elites traveling the world, in this recent book, she explains that she sees the nation state as offering the most feasible means for ending that bifurcation by guaranteeing some reasonable level of economic and social rights. And she says that because the nation is where we dwell in terms of our most fundamental legal rights. Mm. She says it's accountable to all of us in a way that larger units, so far at least, are not. And she calls this the capabilities approach, the idea that uh, there are some important substantial opportunities that a just nation should guarantee to all its citizens. And that also then the nation state can provide help to other nations to provide those capability thresholds as well. And this is a huge change for Ms. Baum. She, she writes uh, of her previous work, of course, I was defending transnational moral ideals, not the greed of multinationals, but I did disparage patriotism. And I now defend instead a globally sensitive patriotism based on the ideas of the capabilities approach as an essential part of sustaining good ideals. I argue that even the best ideas go stale and flat if we don't use rhetoric and the arts to sustain the patriotic emotions focused in them. So I think this is a really interesting piece, mainly because it took me back to, to first year political theory. It's interesting first because it's an example of one of the most prominent political theorists in the world having a really public change of heart and really clearly laying out how her own ideas have evolved over time. Yeah. And two, it has a lot of implications for how we conceptualize a progressive foreign policy. You know, is the nation state a legitimate driver of a progressive foreign policy in a way that it often hasn't been treated as one in the past? I, I mean, what did you think about it, Sam? Yeah, I mean, I broadly agree. It's a great piece, even though the piece itself is basically just an interview with Martha Nussbaum um, about yeah. her book. But uh, yeah. just it's just full of insights. One, so like I grew up thinking that cosmopolitanism was a good, an ideal, like something something that you wanted to kind of strive for, and that was embedded within you know, the worldview of like the armchair liberal or like the, uh, an armchair Democrat, somebody who's not like a political activist, or maybe you are like you flirt with it, but you're just trying to live a kind of like um, aspirational life where like humanity gets better. 
you know, and cosmopolitanism was like implicitly what you were signing on to, whether you had read Cicero or not. Right. And it's what you, it's ideology that comes with Whole Foods and yoga pants and all of that. And the downside of that and the thing that like used to maybe starting like 10 years ago that I made me start to question cosmopolitanism as a kind of tradition or as an orientation that you like strive for was the dissonance of feeling like, well, I care a lot about starving people in Africa. And then when I walk by a homeless person in DuPont circle, there's no quite, there's no compelling reason to give them money. And it was this feeling like you're identifying not with what is right in front of you. You're identifying with some abstraction that is far away. And it didn't lead me to say like cosmopolitanism is, is bad, but it was when you like unspool all this or you unpack it, there's this phenomenon of cosmopolitanism, which I think Martha Nuss, I haven't read the book, but like the way she talks about it in the interview, this is, this is what her reckoning was internally. Cosmopolitanism was justifying a decoupling of political equality and economic equality. And that is, it's kind of anti-progressive to do that. And it made me think that cosmopolitanism is something that cannot be separate from neoliberalism if that's the move that it does. If its function is to segregate um, the political equality at the expense of economic equality, or to say you, in order to achieve political equality and like, uh, you know, a race-free world or whatever, in order to do that, we have to not pursue economic equality. That's that's a non-progressive move. It's a sort of mm -hmm. counter-progressive move. And, you know, like that's problematic. So it sounds like she's having this reckoning where like she's coming, she's coming to realize that, which is good. And if the cosmopolitan tradition evolves, that's also good. One thing I would say is that like, first of all, uh, Michael Walzer, who's like a prominent leftist from like the Cold War days, and he's still a big name. He wrote a book a few years ago called A Foreign Policy for the Left. And it's very controversial because a lot of like hardcore leftists reject the book and they like sort of turn their back on him. But he's still like one of the dominant names. He's like Noam Chomsky level. And in that book, he says that the nation state, even though there is an old tradition on the left that venerates like one world government and that kind of thing, which is that is rooted in the cosmopolitan tradition. He's, he also says that, look, we've learned over time that the state is the highest form of provider of justice. And it's only the state, you, the states dominate international society still, right? And so if you're gonna count on the delivery of, of political goods for mankind, you, you have to rely on the state first. And so he was, he was trying to reorient leftist idealism to channel it through the state. And it's like, you still need international institutions, et cetera, et cetera. But he was centering the state much as Martha Nussbaum seems to be in her new rendering of like cosmopolitanism. All very smart. The only other thing I would say is that like, you don't really, a core principle of progressive foreign policy today is solidarity, the mutual, like t the sense that uh, your struggle is my struggle, right? The notion that all oppression is connected. The fact that like we can be sitting in New Zealand and go to a Black Lives Matter protest because somebody in Missouri got killed, right? That's solidarity, man. Solidarity 
resolves a lot of these problems and it achieves what the highest ideals of cosmopolitan try to achieve. So like maybe cosmopolitanism is inextricably linked to the neoliberal tradition. Maybe it's not, but you don't have to actually engage with it to realize the same kinds of things that you could realize simply on the principle of solidarity. You know, the jury is out about cosmopolitanism itself, like philosophically, but like this just raised so many interesting questions that um, it was worth talking about. A hundred percent. I could not agree more. All right. Time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. Uh, For Ask Me Anything this week, we have two questions. First one is from Gabby. (laughs) So Gabby wants to know your opinion on the Cobra Cobra Kai Netflix series because she binge watched it over (laughs) one day. Yes, I did. And in your opinion, karate versus judo. And she says you can differentiate between Cobra Kai and I can't pronounce this. Miyagi-do, baby. Miyagi-do. Miyagi-do karate. Um... (laughs) This is a hilarious question. Yeah, so Cobra Kai is on Netflix now. This is a huge shift from the cosmopolitan discussion, by the way. But uh, <laughs> is it really? I see. I see very little difference. Yeah, I, I see that difference. <laughs> the through line is so evident. Um, yeah. So first of all, judo over karate seven days a week. I don't want to say karate <laughs> is fake, but um, because any more like what I've seen is that like if you master like truly master a martial art and you're you're strong and fit. You can whoop ass on people who don't know martial arts. Like you can yeah. whoop ass on non-fighters. So like anything works. It's like it's like a diet, you know. Any diet <laughs> fad will work if you're committed to it. But on the merits, that's what mixed martial arts is, man. You go into a cage with basically no rules, and it's like all these different styles of of fighting that have been sequestered on their own for you know millennia. They're forced to compete with each other to see what works best. Jiu-Jitsu came out as being unquestionably the yeah. best, right? Which is a cousin Very of judo. Sure. And but even <laughs> that, it's like now you pull the best from every tradition, cosmopolitanism. And um the- <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> you did. Holy shit. <laughs> Boom. That's the fucking undiplomatic podcast. So <laughs> but like by drawing on the best of all these traditions, you have this integrative, like we're no longer in our disciplinary silos. We're all it's it's mixed martial arts. It's hybrid now, you know, and but still jujitsu is best. Um, Cobra Kai Netflix. Oh, yeah. Can I just say oh, yeah. I lived in Daniel LaRusso's apartment complex in Reseda, California, which is like it features in the Cobra Kai show, too. Like they went back yeah. to it. And it's so awful and shitty. It's this garden style apartment. Uh, it's it's really really bad. But I had so much nostalgia for it because I I lived there. Yeah, I, you've got to see Cobra Kai if you want to understand me. You need to see Karate Kid because that was oh, like yeah. my self conception yeah. for a long time. So yeah, watch Cobra Kai. How long have you done? How, how long have you studied Jiu-Jitsu? So I did it continuously, and I used to compete for maybe three years back in like uh, 09, 10, and 11, some, something around there. Um, and then I picked it up again here in New Zealand uh, about a year ago. But then since lockdown, I haven't done it. So, By the way, to our listeners, uh, Ben is absolutely talking about the Jaden Smith Karate Kid with Jackie Chan. 
Oh my god, that's not even real. It's not even real. That's that's 100% canon. I forgot about that. The only legitimate karate kid. That's not even in my imagination. I feel like... (laughs) The second question is from Melanie Albright. I just heard your latest podcast and you're talking a lot about China being an empire or something. Can you talk more about this? As a sidebar, when I read this for the first time on the Slack chat, I fully thought it was Madeline Albright. (laughs) (laughs) One, I didn't realise we were listening to my former secretaries of state. Two, it makes so much sense that she didn't understand what Chinese hegemony and imperialism was at the time. Of course she doesn't understand it. Yeah, of course Madeline Albright would not understand this. So, yeah, we should advertise that she listens to the show just to see what happens. Um, yeah, so this is this is actually uh, important. I'll do not full justice to this because we're just wrapping up, but empire looks like something structurally, right? It has a core and it has or a center and it has a periphery, right? Mm-hmm. And the periphery happens to be sparsely connected. So intra-peripheral ties are weak, but ties between the center and the periphery are strong. And the center manages the affairs of the of each individual peripheral actor through local intermediaries. And so it's it's this is imperialism was like a form of managing governance over long distances before you had like you know, proper communications and all of that. So it's just this way, it's like this administrative innovation, which happens to be like disastrous and evil. But notionally, it's this way of administering shit over long distances. The problem is simply that it deprives, you know, self-determination of the periphery. And the way that it functions, the, the, how it does that, first of all, it selects the local intermediary, right? But it keeps the periphery um, unconnected from itself. So like if you're a yeah. peripheral actor, you're not connected or you don't have close ties to other peripheral actors. So you deal with the center on those individual bilateral terms. And the center is super empowered because it's it has connections to all the others, but the others don't have connections to each other. And it's the much bigger actor. It has more resources. It has better information. And it uses that position to structure asymmetric bargains. So like favorable arrangements to it. And so it maintains itself as the center and as the most important actor in the structure, in the arrangement. And so that is what empire looks like. So like you can say, even when a, when a foreign policy is not imperial, you can say there's like, oh, there's a lot of imperialism in this foreign policy because we can diagnose that structure and my my take as like a policy person is like if you can see that structure you can deconstruct that structure and if you can't see the structure like if you're blind to it cuz you don't know what an empire looks like structurally then you're going to be just casting about randomly aggressively you're not going to know how to be smartly countering the adversary if we're going to take a competitive approach to china it should be preventing their ability to pursue bilateral asymmetric bargains and it should be stitching together the periphery making them closer with each other preventing the uh, corruption and weak governance that comes from local intermediaries managing affairs so like this is the structure that we look for this is the structure that we want to tear apart or block or prevent you know in a rough sense that's that's what we're talking about here 
All right, gang, that's going to do it. Uh, WPR.pub slash undiplomatic for the World Politics Review newsletter. Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic for money. And uh, if you want to give us a review that is good on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us, that would be much appreciated. Catch you next time. Peace.